Hey, well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John and chapter 14. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Hunter Hall. I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at the church. And uh, let me just say, it is um, one of my greatest joys and honor uh, to serve as one of your pastors. Uh, If you are new with us here today, you have joined us in one of the most unique seasons in the life of our church. For the last five years or so, uh, we have been a campus of the Village Church, uh, but here in just a few months, we will become our own local church, no longer named the Village Church Plano, but rather Citizens Church. Uh, And let me just say, we are so excited at what the Lord is doing here in our midst as he is forming us into a people, but uh, thank you for being with us here today. We're continuing with our study through the Gospel of John, and I pray uh, that the the texts that we've been walking through together have ministered as much uh, to you as they have to me. And this text here in John 14 uh, that we're about to read together, this is a continuation of a conversation that we began last week. Jesus, just to set the table, Jesus is just hours away from going to the cross, and he's gathered with his disciples to prepare them for his departure. And so beginning in chapter 13 of John and going all the way through John chapter 17, uh, we really get to just eavesdrop on Jesus's final instructions to his disciples. We get to listen in to Jesus as he's teaching his disciples why he's leaving and what they are to do after he is gone. And so with that, Let's begin reading John chapter 14 together. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 14. Jesus begins with these words. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may, also, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, Life. It's a funny thing isn't it? Like one moment, everything you could have ever hoped for, everything you could ever have worked towards is right in front of you for the taking. Everything's clicking. You're living your best life now, if you will. 
right? Your relationships are perfect. Your career is taking off. Your health is strong. Your children are obedient. And then in just a matter of a few shifts of circumstance, it can feel like everything you thought you knew, you were wrong about. That relationship becomes fractured. You lose your job. You lose a loved one. Your health fails you. Your kids start fighting at every little turn of the day. Like it doesn't take much for us to find ourselves at the end of our rope. Life can change on a dime. Hopes can wither away. And we've all experienced this to be true in one sense uh, or another. The most real recent life illustration of this for me has come uh, through the form of a herniated disc in my back, which has caused a lot of pain. It's caused a lot of limited mobility for me the last six weeks. That's why I'm sitting down on this stool today. And because of the way that my disc is uh, herniated, it's really hard for me to be up on my feet walking around for long periods of time. I know that some of you are familiar with these things, but man, it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard because I like to walk. It's hard because I, I like to be active with my family, with my kids, with my friends. Like I enjoy not feeling bad a lot. Thankfully, uh, through a lot of different doctors and chiropractors, physical therapists, and a lot of prayer, I feel like we have a good game plan of what needs to happen going forward. Um, but this disc pain has really put a damper on my life. Like, I've battled a lot of discouragement these last six weeks. And I know that, that many of you in here today know that hollow feeling, that defeated feeling that discouragement can bring. The reality is the world is full of unrest. It's full of turmoil. Discouragement can creep into our life without much trouble at all. But discouragement's costly. Like the longer that I find myself lingering in the discouragement, the more that it robs me of my joy in the Lord, which means this, when I'm discouraged, I don't wake up in the morning remembering God's mercies over my life. When I'm discouraged, I, it's hard for me to believe that God is for me. When I'm discouraged, I don't go to bed at night thinking on God's love over my life, as David writes in Psalm 63, that he thinks on God through the watches of the night. And while we will all face discouragement from time to time, maybe even for some of you today in this moment, what I'm confident of is that Jesus does not want us to be discouraged. Jesus doesn't want us to be troubled. And the reason that I'm confident about that is because of what he just said here in our text. In verse 1, he starts by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Why did he need to tell his disciples this? Why did he say this? Because they were discouraged. They were deeply troubled at what Jesus had just told them in the last few verses of chapter 13. Chapter 13 ends after Judas gets up and leaves their dinner to betray Jesus. It ends with Jesus telling his disciples that Jesus is about to leave and that they cannot follow him where he's going. And so Peter begins asking Jesus these questions, and, and Peter pledges his allegiance to Jesus, saying that he is going to follow Jesus wherever he goes, whenever, however that looks. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, no, I'm, I'm leaving you, and Peter, you're not even going to make it through the night without denying me. That's tough news to receive. 
Jesus just dropped a bomb on these guys. Think about this scene with me. Their world's about to stop for these guys. Everything that these disciples have known, everything that they've believed in for the last three years of their life is about to change. These guys left their careers and their families to follow Jesus. They've been mocked. They've been ridiculed. They've seen friends turned away. They've committed every moment of their lives to follow Jesus. And now Jesus tells them that he's leaving them and they can't follow him anymore. That's earth-shaking. And so these guys are now forced to have to deal with the coming death, with the coming departure of Jesus. And this is why all of them at the table are discouraged. So Jesus begins in verse 1 saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. That word troubled means stirred up. Like their hearts are this, like maybe like ingredients in a mixing bowl. They have doubt and confusion and uncertainty and fear and discouragement all being stirred around inside of them. They're troubled. They're stirred up. And it's in this emotionally trying moment that Jesus comforts his disciples, which is just remarkable to me. Here's Jesus about to go to the cross to take upon himself the sin of the world, yet he compassionately and perfectly enters into the turmoil of the disciples to bring comfort. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I love what Jesus is doing here. Not only is he gently calling his disciples out of their discouragement, he's also giving them the solution to their discouragement. He gives them the solution. It's in, in this time when the disciples' hearts were stirred up, Jesus reminds them they need to keep believing in him. They need to look to him. Don't be troubled. He says, believe in me. And the call that he gives the disciples here in this first verse, he's also giving to us here today. It's that when we're discouraged, when we're troubled, we need to continue to do that which we have already done. He doesn't say, guys, for the first time, now is the time for you to believe in me. He's saying, you have believed in me. Believe in God. Believe, keep believing in me. Keep trusting. Keep relying on me. The solution to the disciples' discouragement and anxious turmoil is to trust in Jesus. To trust that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he will do what he says he will do. Listen, the reality of living in a fallen and a broken world is that words like discouragement and turmoil, sorrow, death, pain, these are all words that we're familiar with in our vocabulary. Again, we're all going to face these things. So often in life, we have a cause to be troubled. Like, I don't want us to deny that trouble isn't a reality. Evil does exist. Death is a real enemy. Troubles do come. Jesus himself was troubled. Just in the chapter before, it says that Jesus was troubled in spirit when he told his closest friends that one of them would betray him. We cannot live our lives under some illusion that trouble will never befall the Christian. Discouragement will come, and we just need to be honest about that. But the Christian life is not about minimizing our troubles. Like, we don't need to ask, 
how do we get rid of all the trouble in our life, but rather, how do we battle against the discouragement of a troubled heart? It's not about us just escaping and living in a bubble to avoid any sort of turmoil. Peace, true peace, is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God in the midst of trouble. That's peace. Like we have to keep our focus on Jesus through the trials of life. Jesus calls us to trust him when we face anxious turmoil in life. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Trust in me, he says. In a way, Jesus is telling his disciples to not be consumed with what they see in front of them, but rather be consumed with what's been promised to them. Like it it was easy for those guys to focus on their circumstance right in front of them. And I don't blame them. I do the same thing. We all do it. We all become consumed. We become ruled by our circumstances right in front of us. And again, for these guys, all they knew was about to change. But Jesus calls them to trust in his promises. He wants them to be ruled by what he has promised to them. And I think that Jesus beautifully lays out three main promises here in our text over these next 13 verses as to why we can trust him, as to why we can believe in him. Three promises in this text that I want us, I want us to be consumed with in our lives, to fight to believe in the midst of turmoil. So Peter, Thomas, Philip, the other disciples, Citizens Church, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in Jesus because he has promised us a place, a path, and power. First, the promise of a place, verses two and three. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You can trust me because I promise to go prepare a place for you in my father's house. After Jesus' death, after his resurrection, it's time for Jesus to return to his father's home. It's time for Jesus to go back to heaven, to go home. And what Jesus makes clear in these few verses is that his home has become his disciples' home. His home has become their home. Like, let that sink in. He, he, it doesn't say it's a hotel. We're not just guests. It's home. There's nothing like home. Jesus is preparing for his followers this new home. It's a different home. It's a house with many rooms, he says, which means there's space for all of those who can trust in Jesus. There's space. He also says it's a place. Heaven is a real place created by God for his people to dwell with him forever. It's real. Two times in these verses, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. What's he saying here? Like, when, when you hear the word prepare, what do you think of? Like, does it mean that rooms in heaven need to be remodeled? Like, is heaven in shambles and 
Jesus is going to come dressed up in overalls and a tool belt, and he's going to do some construction on a heavenly house? No, the, the preparation of the place is not done with a hammer and nails. The house of God is not in shambles. When Jesus says that he is going to prepare a place, he is talking about the work that is required to get us home to God. And Jesus is the only one who can do this work. That's why no one can follow him. The tools are not hammer and nails. The tools Jesus uses to prepare a place for us are a cross and a grave. Jesus prepares this special home for his disciples by laying down his life on the cross so that their sins can be atoned for. And when Jesus goes to the cross, that very obstacle between us and our room in the Father's house is removed. The house is not defective. We just can't get there unless Jesus goes to the cross. There's a lot that we can say about heaven Books have been written about heaven, about its beauty, about its splendor. There's also a great deal about heaven that's still a mystery to us, to me at least. Like, what are the streets of gold like? What's with all the jewels and the crowns everywhere? For all that that we could spend our time talking about when it comes to us remembering the promise of heaven, what seems to be clearest to me about heaven is that everything will center on Jesus Christ. Like the defining characteristic of heaven is the worship of Jesus. Heaven is not great because there's no sickness and there's no pain. Heaven is great because Jesus is there. As Jesus is making this promise to his disciples, he's not promising the coolest bachelor pad in the sky where they can do whatever they want. No, he is promising his very presence with us, and that is the greatest treasure that we could hope for. Notice that Jesus says he's going to prepare a place and he will come again and take us to himself. He says, I'll come again and take you to myself This means that ultimately the promise of a place is really a promise of a person. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. This is the theme of heaven that we're to think upon when we're met with deep-seated discouragement, with trouble. Yes, a day is coming when we won't experience pain, where we won't be discouraged. But greater than that, a day is coming, friends, When we get to be reunited with the risen Son of God, Jesus is our ultimate dwelling place. And when we think of heaven, we need to think of the perfect presence of Jesus. What these verses focus on in the second coming of Christ is not an eventual trip to heaven, but a reunion with Jesus. So this is the first promise that Jesus makes to combat our troubled hearts. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again. I will take you to myself. It's the presence of Jesus that sustains us in the midst of turmoil, of trouble. The second promise that Jesus makes is that of a path, a place, a path. Verse 4, he says, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
This is one um, roller coaster of a night that the disciples are having, right? So far, they ate dinner with Jesus. They've had their feet washed by their leader. They've been warned of a traitor in their midst. They've seen Peter shot down as he declared allegiance to Jesus. And they just found out Jesus is leaving them. That's a pretty meaty dinner party. But after all this bad news, Jesus promises to be with them forever. And he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And this time it's not Peter with the question, it's Thomas. Who essentially says, Jesus, we... We don't understand where you're going. How can we possibly know the way to get there? We don't know the destination, which means we don't know the journey. How do we get there? And it's in response to this question that Jesus gives his second promise to his disciples to combat their troubled hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled, but trust in me because I am promising you the path into the Father's presence. Honestly, I'm, I'm glad for the disciples' confusion and their comments and their questions because they resulted in some pretty amazing answers from Jesus. Jesus says that he is the way. The word way emphasized, it's repeated in verses 4 and verse 5 and verse 6, and it refers to the way to heaven, into the Father's presence. And so notice that Jesus does not say here, I know the way to heaven. I can point you to the way of heaven. He also doesn't say, I am one of many ways. He says, I am the way. This statement, this verse, verse 6, that Jesus makes is easily one of the most offensive things Jesus ever said in the scriptures. This language is exclusive. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. He is the life. And no one can get into the presence of the Father unless they go through him. Like, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how hard you try to live this moral life without Jesus, no one stands a chance. Not one person stands a chance at being in the presence of God. But as offensive as this claim is, I actually think that in Jesus saying this about himself, he solves humanity's great problem. Here's what I mean in Genesis, first book of the Bible. Before sin ever entered the world, Adam and Eve enjoyed a threefold privilege in relation to God. First, they were in constant communion with God. They walked with God, they talked with God, they heard from God. Second, they unashamedly knew God and the truth that flowed from him. And third, they possessed spiritual life. But then they disobeyed God and they lost that privilege that they once had with God. Instead of their communion with him, they experienced alienation from God. Instead of knowing the truth, they began to believe lies. Instead of life, they tasted death. And this is our human condition. From birth, every single person on the face of this planet, from that moment in the garden when they were removed from the garden until now, every single person is alienated from God, ignorant of the truth, condemned to spiritual and ultimately physical death. It's what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter two. But then Jesus comes and he says what he just said to his disciples. And instead of alienation, he said, there's the way to God. Instead of ignorance, there's the truth. Instead of death, there is Jesus, who is the life of humanity. 
Like this statement in verse six, as offensive as it might be, this is the gospel. This is the good news that we're to call on and that we're to believe in, that we're to hope in in times of trouble. On top of this being the good news, friends, this is how we exhale in the midst of discouragement. What Jesus just said, this is how we exhale. Here's what I mean. If Jesus is the way into the presence of the Father, that means that I don't have to rely on myself to be perfect. The effort required to live a life that is presented as perfect is exhausting, is it not? The amount of effort, the amount of resource and time and energy that we put forward to other people to present our lives as perfect, that's exhausting. So often I, I, I find myself trying to put forward this picture-perfect life that I live, this ideal self, if you will. I do it partially because I, I want everyone to know that I deserve their love, but I also do it so that God would accept me. But Jesus, Jesus, he shatters this ideal self and he invites me to live the life of his way. It's the way of grace when I mess up. It's the way of love when I feel unlovable. Ultimately, it's the way of acceptance to the Father through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Jesus, he's the way. Jesus is also the truth. And if Jesus is the truth, then I don't need to live in uncertainty about where I stand with God. Listen, in our culture, truth is whatever I want to make it. There's no absolute truth. Truth is all relative. What you say is true, I don't have to claim is true. But the problem with this way of thinking is that it changes all the time because I change all the time. What I say is true one day, I may not claim to be true the next day. But Jesus never changes. Jesus doesn't claim to know the truth. He, he says he is the truth, which means that everything he says can be trusted. If Jesus is the truth, then we can trust every word that comes from his mouth. He doesn't simply tell the truth, he embodies it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is life, then I don't need to fear death. If Jesus is life, then I know that no amount of turmoil or discouragement on this earth could ever keep me from eternal life in God. There's great comfort found in the scriptures when it comes to God's relation to his people. In the Old Testament, David writes in Psalm 56, he says, this I know, that God is for me. That's amazing to think about. God's for us. He's on our side. He's got our back. He's got our front. And then Jesus comes, and with his birth, the announcement is that he is Emmanuel, God with us. When Jesus walked this earth, he was with his people. So not only is God for me, he's now with me. But then Jesus says that he's the life. He goes to the cross and he dies, then raises from the dead, and now Jesus dwells in those who 
believe. So it is not just that God is for us. It is not just that he is with us. He who is life, friend, lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul writes in Colossians. Just like the place Jesus promises is found in a person, so too the way Jesus promises is found in a person himself. It's personal. It means that when you're discouraged, when you're troubled, when you're stirred up, it's not about keeping a list of rules to to get through that. It's not about this magical formula that you that you live out and no it's it's about trusting in the way it's about trusting in the truth in the life in Jesus to keep our eyes fixed on the way to God don't let your hearts be troubled you can trust Jesus because he has promised to be the way the truth and the life and then lastly the promise of power look down at verse 12 He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Here is the last promise to comfort the disciples' hearts. Jesus is not withdrawing from them. He isn't getting out of the difficulty of life so that he can just sit back and relax in heaven. No, Jesus is going ahead of them and Jesus will continue to actively work in them and through his disciples. Although Jesus is about to leave this earth, he is not leaving his followers alone to figure it out themselves. We'll spend more time on this next week, but when Jesus departs back to the Father, he promises to send his people the helper, which is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost and emboldens the believers in the work of making known the beauty of Jesus to the world. And through the Holy Spirit, listen, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus supplies his disciples with power. And this power will be seen through greater works and greater answered prayer. When Jesus says in verse 12, I love it. He says that all of us who believe in Jesus, not just the 11 disciples, he said, whoever believes, if you're a Christian, this applies to you. Whoever believes will carry on with his work and somehow, in some way, do something greater than the works of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus say that, that they'll do greater works, I get a little skeptical. I do. Like if you read through the Gospels, Jesus did some unbelievable things. Here's a short list of things that Jesus did that I have never done. He turned water into wine. He read the mind of a woman from Samaria. He healed a crippled man who'd been crippled for 38 years. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. I can't even feed myself properly with that amount of food. (laughs) He walked on water. He raised someone from the dead. Like, none of us can do these things. That's the work of Jesus, not, not me, not us. So then what is Jesus talking about when he says, 
You'll do greater works. I think it means greater in extent. Greater does not mean more spectacular. Like nothing could be done that's more spectacular than what Jesus did. But greater in extent. Consider this promise here in the larger context of God's plan of redemption. While Jesus was on this earth, he never once preached outside of Palestine. No one in Europe had ever heard the gospel. But today, his disciples have spread the gospel all around the globe, greater in extent. While Jesus was on this earth, he had a few followers who believed. At the beginning of Acts, a few dozen disciples were gathered in a room, but by Acts 2, 3,000 disciples are added to the church. Extent. While Jesus was on this earth, he dealt mostly with the Jews. However, his disciples across the ages have spread the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, I don't want us to think that Jesus did something while he was on earth, and now we do something that now he's gone. Like, it's not that we need to contrast the works of Jesus with the disciples. That's the wrong way to think about it. The distinction is between that which Jesus did on earth and what Jesus now is accomplishing from heaven through his people on earth. Jesus is still doing the work. It's a reminder to us, listen, that even though the world is harsh, even though you're going to face trials and turmoil, even though we all face discouragement, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him to commission us to be his disciples, to take the message of the gospel everywhere and make more disciples. Doesn't stop. Doesn't stop because I have a herniated disc. That's the first way his power will be seen, greater works. But it will also be evident through answered prayer. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. All I'll say about this is that to pray in Jesus' name is not to recite a magical chant so that we can get what we want, but to pray in line with God's will. It's prayer that, when answered, it brings glory to God. It's to pray with the understanding that the request we're bringing is one that Jesus would sign his name to. It's a prayer that, if answered, would show the world who God is and what God cares about. The goal of prayer is not the fulfilling of our request. The goal of prayer is the glorification of God. And so, friends, when we pray, we can be confident we can be confident in the Spirit's work in us, and that should stir us up to pray in power in the name of Jesus so that he would be seen in us and through us and made much of through our lives. And listen, here's what I know to be true. There are some in here today, there's some in here today who have forgotten about this power that Jesus gives. You've forgotten this promise. Somewhere along the way in your journey of life, you've moved away from this power that's available to you in the Holy Spirit. 
Maybe you've been beaten up too much by this world. Maybe you've experienced so much loss that it's left you feeling a bit spiritually paralyzed. But today, Jesus stands before you, and he is calling out to you with this promise of power. Having believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is ready to embolden you to pray to the Lord to do far more abundantly than what you could ask or even think. Jesus is calling out to you to remind you that the same power that raised Christ from the grave now lives inside of you to be a bold witness to his grace and his love. And there is not one single weapon formed against you that will prosper. Lean into Jesus. Trust in this power. Three promises to believe in in the face of discouragement. The promise of a place, the promise of a path, and power. Don't let your hearts be consumed by what you're facing today. Let it be ruled by what Jesus has promised to you, Citizens Church. Like an engagement ring, these promises bring us hope for that day when we'll see him face to face. That's what I'm begging God to remind me of in this season of my life. Like I don't want to be ruled by my present circumstance of a painful herniated disc. I want to lean on the perfect promises of Jesus that he is at work within me in my pain. Daily, I'm fighting to believe the words of Paul in Romans 8, 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, not just the good things, the difficult things. They work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so, friends, what's, what's tempting you to discouragement today? Are you in turmoil? Are you having a hard time believing that God really will work for good what looks so bad to you in this season? It could be that God has taken you through something really difficult so that you would learn to trust him more. Citizens Church, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in Jesus because he has promised to be your perfect dwelling place your path to life, and your power to make his fame and name known in and through your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to trust you today. I pray that we would not rely on our own strength Not today, not this week, not in this season of life, not ever. I pray we wouldn't rely on our own strength, God, but I pray that we would boast all the more in our weaknesses because you are strong. Because it's in that place where your grace is sufficient. It's in that place that it's enough for us. And so, God, I don't want my heart to be troubled. I don't want my friends' hearts to be troubled. God, I, I want us to collectively lean in on your promises that you are who you say that you are, that you're our dwelling place, 
that you're the way into the presence of the Father, that you are our power. So God, I pray for, um, pray for those of, of us in this room here today who are walking through discouragement, who are troubled, who are anxious in this season of life, maybe who've just lost a loved one, maybe difficulty with getting pregnant, maybe lost a job, maybe just are going through a difficult breakup. Meet us in the place where we are today. Become our everything today. We pray this, these things believing in the name of Jesus, the name above every name, the King's King and the Lord's Lord. Amen.